Our scripture comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. Look, there was a great earthquake, for an angel from the Lord came down from heaven. Coming to the stone, he rolled it away and sat on it. Now his face was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. The guards were so terrified of him that they shook with fear and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here because he has been raised from the dead, just as he said. Come, see the place where they laid him. Now hurry, go and tell his disciples. He has been raised from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee, and you will see him there. I have given the message to you. With great fear and excitement, they hurried away from the tomb and ran to tell his disciples. But Jesus met them and greeted them. They came and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers that I am going into Galilee, and they will see me there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I have preached every Easter Sunday for the last 19 years. I think it's 19 years. Um, As I was preparing and thinking about this Easter, I wondered if perhaps I might be able to offer a new perspective on the Easter story. Not a new perspective, but a different perspective, a different way of seeing it. And as I thought more and more about it, and as I considered to whom this message was first given, I wondered if maybe someone else might be better to give a differing perspective on this story, a perspective that I do not have. And so I asked Leah Wheeler if she would preach for me on Easter morning. That's a big step for me because I like Easter and I like preaching. But I think Leah can offer a perspective that perhaps I can't. When I asked her and she began to tell me and share with me what she was thinking for this particular sermon, I have to admit, I got pretty excited. Um, and, and truth be told, since I've talked to her about it more and more, I have thought about it and, and this perspective that she's bringing since she told me about it and, and seen this story in differing ways than I had before and seen new things in it that I hadn't seen in the long... I've heard this story every Easter since I was born. Um, and so I'm excited um, to ask Leah to come up and to share the word with us this morning. Leah. All right. Good morning. morning. I'm happy to be here this morning. I don't always say that about church because there's something about just getting up on a Sunday morning that you're like, oh, it's such a chore, you know? But um, I am happy to be here this morning and I'm happy that you are here. I know for some of you, this may be like a once in a while occasion where you come to church on Sunday, like at Christmas or Easter, that's okay. I know for some of you, you've been coming to Sunday service every morning since the day you were born. So for those of you who have been here a little bit longer, I'm going to be a little non-traditional because that's who I am. And uh, I am, by profession, a teacher. So I'm going to ask questions periodically, and I'm actually going to expect you to give answers back. 
which is unusual during a sermon. So feel free to shout out answers. It's got to be kind of loud so that I can hear. If you're not comfortable answering, that's fine, but uh, we'll have to we'll have to figure something out if nobody answers. All right. Um, so there's a couple of things about me that you should know. And I hesitated. I didn't share this in the first service. I'm, I have a hard time sharing this because some people take it completely wrong. And I don't want that to happen. So please do not hear what I am not saying. All right? So my whole life, I have been someone in the margins. And it's not just like, I'm going to talk about women a lot and their place in society and and what Jesus did and how he turned things on its head. I'm going to talk about that a lot today. But it's not just about that. Because besides the fact that I'm a woman, there's a, a new term for me out there. And I actually, I really like this term because I think it explains things a little bit. I am what's called a non gender conforming person. So, all that means is, it's a big fancy way of saying in the academic world, is that I don't fit traditional roles of what being a woman is usually thought of, right? So, um, I'm in my 40s, and I've never been married. And to be honest, I was never one of those, yeah, my son's in the back going, yay! Um, (laughs) Apparently, he's happy having just me. But... uh, I have never been interested or like I wasn't that little girl who was like, oh, I'm going to put on a beautiful white dress and I'm going to walk down the aisle and I'm always thinking about my wedding. Now, that's great if you were that girl, but I was not that girl. I was like, how can I look more like a pirate? What tree can I climb? Uh, What sport can I play? How can I beat my older brother in anything that he does? Right? This is who I was. And all of my life, people outside of my family who did not know me and did not understand me told me that I was not being right. That there was something about how I was behaving that was somehow wrong. And I grew up with a family who understood me. And my mom said, well, when we were growing up, we just thought it was more important that you liked church than what you wore to church. So if you wanted to wear pants to church, then more power to you, right? So luckily, thankfully, God blessed me with parents who understood me and who didn't try to force me to be something that God didn't make me to be. And I, all growing up, the first time that somebody asked me if I was a lesbian, I was in third grade. Third grade. The answer was no. But the point is that I was outside of what people considered normal for how a girl should act. And therefore, there was an assumption that went with it. So all of my life, I have encountered this back and forth marginalization 
women not accepting me because I'm not enough like women, men not accepting me because I'm not enough like, because I'm too much like them, and just not really fitting in. So when Mike asked me to give a perspective on today's scripture, I thought, yeah, I can do that. And I'm going to talk a lot about women, but it's not just about women. I want you to hear what I'm saying. It's about being in the margins and leading from the margins. Because all of us have something that puts us in the margins. All of us have been there at some point in our life or will be there at some point in our life. So, what does God do with people in the margins? Let's take a look at what the scripture says. For those of you who've been here in church for years and years and you've heard the Easter story from all four different gospels many times, there's, there's a tradition that says it's good that the Gospels aren't all exactly the same, right? So atheists will say, oh, we can't trust the Bible and we can't trust the Gospels and it can't be true because they all tell different stories. Well, it is true that each of the four Gospel writers had a different perspective on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And actually, now, if you asked a lawyer or a police officer, investigator, anyone who does deals on a regular basis with eyewitness testimony, they will tell you that stories that match up exactly and are completely the same in every detail are immediate giveaways that this was a lie cooked up by a group of people, that they got together and talked about what they were going to say and figured it out, and then went out and told everyone. They said, actually, what you want when you have eyewitness testimony is you want to have all different perspectives. You want to see that there's variations in what they're telling you because each one of us will see the same incident from a different perspective. Different things will stand out to us. We'll notice different things. We'll think different things about it are important. So each of the gospel writers has a purpose and has things that they noticed that some of the other writers didn't, which is why we have some things that are written in some of the gospels or one of the gospels, but are completely ignored and not mentioned in the others. The important thing these experts would tell you is that the basic facts remain the same throughout the entire narrative, through all four accounts. So... For those of you who've been around, what are some of the things in all four gospel accounts that we know about the resurrection because they're the same in all four accounts? I'll give you an example to get you started, okay? So um, all four of the gospels say that Jesus was definitely dead, and each one of them gives some kind of proof that he was dead, that everybody knew he was dead. There was no like, oh, he just fainted or he was in a coma or whatever. He was dead, dead, dead. Okay. All of them agree with that. So that's one thing that all four gospels tell us. What's something else that all four gospels tell us? That he died on the cross 
that he died on a cross and that it was what we would call a Friday. Okay? Good. What else? What things do we know about the resurrection because they're in all four Gospels? That it was predicted. That it was predicted, yes. So all four Gospels in some form tell us that Jesus knew what was going to happen and he prepared his disciples for it. He told them what was going to happen in advance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, interestingly, all four Gospels say that the first people to see the empty tomb and to see Jesus resurrected were women. So you may be asking, why is this important? Well, during Jesus' time in the culture and, and place that he was living, it was not considered appropriate for women to give testimony about something. You could murder someone, and if a woman was the only person who saw you murder that person, then you would get away with it, because a woman's testimony was not considered trustworthy in court. In this society, women were not supposed to work. They were supposed to stay home, take care of the children, be quiet, be obedient. If one of, if there were no male adults in the family, when the oldest male turned 12, he became the head of the household. And what that boy said would become how the household operated because he was male, despite the fact that there would be other adults who were female who would know better, right? So... In this culture, women did not travel around. They did not go to school and learn. They didn't support their families financially unless there was desperate crisis. Um, in fact, that's why the Bible and Jesus are so adamant about taking care of widows and orphans because they weren't allowed really to go out and earn an income for themselves. So we have an entire group of people, half the population even, that is marginalized by the culture and the society. And Jesus turns that thinking on its head. And he says, I am going to make those women, those marginalized women, the ones who give testimony about me the ones who lead the other disciples to Galilee. Right? So let's take this even a step farther, because not only were, were they women, but uh, one of the prominent women that is mentioned is Mary Magdalene. Anyone know who Mary Magdalene was? A prostitute. But one of the reasons she was a prostitute is because she had been what they called demon-possessed. In other words, she was crazy, certifiably crazy. Someone that today we would lock up in an institution. Talk about someone on the margins. She had only been healed by Jesus about two years before that. 
So here's what I would ask you to envision in your head, okay? You know someone up until their whole life pretty much, up until about two years ago, they were certifiably insane and they were locked up in an institution for it. Now, that person two years ago through whatever miraculous thing or through whatever medicine or whatever is healed, declared no longer insane. And that person today walks into this church and says, hey, remember so-and-so who died? I saw them alive today and they told me to tell you to go up to Olympia and meet them there. What would you do? Would you get in your car and drive to Olympia? No, right? None of us would. So not only did he take women, but he took someone who was so extremely in the margin that all of us agree we would not listen to that person if they came in and told us about someone being raised from the dead. And yet that is exactly who God chose as the witness as the person who is supposed to go out and convince everyone else of the truth of his resurrection. So, why does this matter to us? What is Jesus doing? This is actually par for the course for Jesus. You see, all during those three years of his ministry two of which Mary was with him, he encouraged women to join him as disciples and travel around with him, which was unheard of. He encouraged women to learn scripture and to learn from him as the rabbi, which was also unheard of. He encouraged women to support him and be part of the financial backing of his ministry. And you know what? None of those things were what their culture told them they should be doing. So let's take a moment to look at our culture. Mm, Now we're getting a little personal, aren't we? In our culture... What are we told that men should be like? Rough and rugged. rugged. Manly. What else? Protectors. Maybe a little stoic, right? Oh, nothing touches me. I can't be hurt. Huh? The breadwinner of the family. Bringing home the bacon. Okay? If you're vegan, bringing home the tofu. All right. What else? Leaders. Leaders. Men are leaders. Women are followers. Yeah, so what are we told women should be like? Submissive. Submissive, quiet, soft-spoken. Even if we do confront someone, we have to do it really nicely. And, oh, I don't really want to hurt you. But have you thought about... Right? What else? Huh? Oh, yes, they should be in the house. They should put their children first above everything else. Okay? 
definitely they should not be putting a job first. Um, never mind that men are supposed to put their jobs first, right? What else? Even if they have a job, should their house be clean? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now, men, when you walk into a single man's house and they have a job, you're like, oh, it's a pigsty. What do I expect, you know? Right? <laughs> no offense, men. I have a 16-year-old son, so uh, that's, I just default to that when I think of men, <laughs> which is not good either. <laughs> okay. So we have these cultural ideas about how men and women should be. But Jesus gives us a different picture. Jesus says nothing about women having children. Jesus says it's better to sit and learn at my feet than to have a clean house and lots of food for your guests. Jesus says come follow me and learn. And in this story of the resurrection, we find Jesus saying, testify to the truth. In other words, preach the truth to the male disciples that I am risen and that they need to go to Galilee. And then they're told, take them, tell them to go to Galilee. In other words, lead them to me in Galilee. So right there, we've got something that not only confronts the culture in Jesus' time, but confronts the culture in our time. We are not told that women are supposed to lead. We're told that good Christian women don't lead. But we're also told that men need to listen to the women. Right? What would have happened... Oh, actually, let's ask this. What did happen when the women told the disciples? They didn't believe them, and they ran to the tomb to try and prove the women wrong. But they got to the tomb, and what did they see? An empty tomb. Did they see Jesus? Nope. They had to believe what the women said, And do what the women said and let the women lead them to Jesus in Galilee. So, there's a couple of lessons for us. In our society, someone told me that they didn't like that I used these uh, statistics. And that's okay. Uh, I understand why they don't like the statistics. But until these statistics get evened out and are equal in both ways, we need to admit that we have a problem in our society. So here are the statistics. One in four women in the U.S. have experienced physical abuse by a man at some point in their life, according to the U.S. Department of Justice. According to the Washington State Department of Justice, in 2016, 76% of women in Washington State who were murdered were killed by a man who was their intimate partner. Is it true that some women are abusive of their spouses? Yes. 
but the statistics are not nearly as high and the murder rates are not nearly as high. I mean, you can say, well, that's just because men aren't reporting it. But murder gets reported. So until I see those statistics evening out or hopefully, prayerfully, coming to zero murders would be awesome. I think as a society, we need to recognize that we have a problem where men, for some reason, feel like they don't have to respect women. And here's the one that's really hard for me because it comes from an organization that considers itself to be a Christian organization. And their thing is, they they do marriage counseling and marriage seminars and things like that. And their thing is, men just need to be respected and women just need to be loved. And as long as you hold to that formula in your family, in your marriage, then your marriage will go well. As if women don't need to be respected. And as if men don't need to be loved. The truth is, the gospel says, and Jesus shows us, that women and men both need to be loved, and women and men both need to be respected. That's what Jesus does. He turns the culture on its head and says, no, they are equal. They need to be equally loved, equally respected, equally honored, given equal opportunities to lead and share with people about the resurrection and salvation of Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, here's a question. Women, what has God been asking you to do that you have not been doing because it's not considered culturally correct. Men, have you been doing something or maybe not doing something, like maybe you haven't been encouraging women who are in leadership positions because your culture says not to? Even though Jesus clearly says that women are equal to men as disciples of Christ. We look at our society, we look out there and we say, oh yeah, they're they're all going to hell. It's terrible, right? As a church, as believers, as followers of Christ, the first place we must look is here. Here. The first culture that we must challenge and say, is this the way God meant it to be, is here. Because if we're not doing this the way God meant for us to do it, then we're in trouble. Then we have no purpose here. And that's tough. Because we like to think that we have purpose here. So I want to challenge you, if you've been in the church for a long time, 
to prayerfully ask where have we gone wrong where have we conformed to a culture that is not what God and Jesus have taught us because you know what Jesus was in the margins too did you know that Jesus was born into a very poor family born in a barn Uh, Within the first three years of his life, he ended up being a refugee because he was being chased by Herod. Herod wanted to kill him, so he was a refugee and a foreigner in Egypt. When he came back, he was a carpenter in a very small village. And when he started his ministry, he was homeless for three years, jobless for three years. He had no political power whatsoever he had a band of followers who were not scholars but who were fishermen and women and tax collectors and all the bad people in the society all the marginalized people and he never took over the country militarily the way that the Israelites thought the Messiah would In other words, Jesus never led from a position of power. He always led from the margins. And that is the same calling that the church has been given, that we as believers and followers of Christ have been given. We are called to teach, preach, pray, sing, talk, and lead from the margins. We are called to live in the margins just like Jesus did we are not called to places of power individually we may have places of power because of where we were born but that is not what we are called to we are called to walk with people to speak truth to respect and love all people as our Lord Jesus did. So Jesus gave these women and people from the margins a place of honor, a place of leadership, a place in history, and a role in preaching and teaching the truth of Christ and his resurrection. Are we doing the same for people in the margins? Are we showing them respect Are we giving them a place of honor? Are we giving people roles of leadership and places where they can serve and be loved and love? Are we respecting them as the human being that God created them to be? Despite the fact that they are very different. Our culture tells us that some things just aren't possible. For example, the resurrection. All right, so one of the classes I teach is philosophy, intro to philosophy. And there are so many philosophers out there and so much in our culture that says anyone who believes in resurrection of the dead or miracles is really just um, 
But see, I, I wrote it. It's a quote from one of the philosophers. Poor, ignorant, biased, or stupid. Okay? I'm not joking. So, if our culture says that we are poor, ignorant, biased, and stupid for believing in the resurrection, are we letting our culture tell us the opposite of what we know to be true? Crazy Mary, nobody would believe her. But Jesus put her in a place of leadership. The resurrection shouldn't be possible. But it was. Miracles do happen. Are we letting our culture silence us? Because we don't want to be seen as people in the margins. Or are we willing to stand for truth in the margins, respecting and loving people, not judging? Don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying judge. I'm saying loving and respecting people while speaking the truth. From the margins, not from a place of power. When you speak from a place of power... You lose your authority in God's kingdom. Jesus never spoke from a place of power. He could have. He's God, right? But instead, he chooses to be in the margins. He chooses to take our sins. Now... You might be asking, what do I mean by sin? So basically, sin is not doing something God tells you to do. And it's also, you could say it's doing something unjust. Unjust to yourself, unjust to other people. All of us at some point have done something, have perpetrated some kind of injustice towards another person. Anybody in here willing to raise their hand and say, I have never done anything unjust to someone else ever in my life? Okay, good. I'm glad we're all on the same page. All right. I certainly can't say that. And here's the thing. God is a just and holy God. So he can't just let that injustice go and be like, oh, it's okay. I love you. Right? Now, he respects us. He respects our choices. And the fact that we have choice comes from him. But he can't let that injustice go. So what does he do? He comes down to earth. We call him Jesus. And he says, right, I'm taking all of that injustice, all of the results of that injustice, and all of the punishment for that injustice, and I'm taking it on me. And if you want to be free of that, if you want to be forgiven of that injustice, you can accept me and what I've done on the cross. Believe in me and follow me. And I'll wipe it away. (sighs) 
That's some kind of leadership. To me, that is a powerful example of how we ought to be in the church. We ought to be the most loving, most respectful, most open people as believers. Sometimes I think we need to confess that that's not who we've been. Thankfully, Jesus' death on the cross and his victory and his resurrection covers that too. As a church, we are covered. As individuals, we are covered. But that's not the end of it. Because Jesus didn't just die resurrect and have a party no no he gave his disciples especially the women even the women a calling a job something to do as they walked forward into the future are you walking with him today This is your opportunity, if you're not walking with him, to accept what he's done. To move forward with him. All you have to do is let him know that you believe that he died for your sins and rose again and overcame sin and death. And that you will walk with him from now on. But make no mistake, this is not an easy choice to make. It's a lifelong journey. And it's a journey that we do together. Because let's face it, being in the margins is not easy. Especially if one of your hang-ups is that you like to be in places of power. How many of you like to be in the margins? How many of you would prefer to be in a place of power if you could? I know I would. It would be a lot easier if I could just tell everyone around me what to do, and they did it, right? Especially as a parent. Um, (laughs) But that's not reality. So as a church, we work together. And as a pastor... I want to promise that with God's help, I will do the best that I can. As a believer, as a follower of Christ, I want to do the best I can with God's help to walk with you, the community of believers, through this future with Christ. I want to do my best in God's power To love you, to show you respect, to encourage you to grow in your faith, to take leadership roles where God calls you to lead, and to help you in any way I can 
and in ways that help you to grow. So some of you may be here for the first time. Some of you have been here a long time. There's something that we do on a regular basis. We call it communion. And it's, it's something that Jesus taught us to do before he was killed. And then Paul said, we need to keep doing this. And we do it for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is to remember Christ's death and resurrection for our sakes. One of them is to remind us that we are a community and that we're meant to help each other and encourage each other and help and encourage the people outside of our communities as well. And part of what communion does is it helps us come together and say, as a community, We're going to support each other. We're going to help each other. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to love each other. We're going to respect each other. No matter who we are, where we come from, or what our place in the margins is. So as we come to the ending portion of the service today. We're going to be taking communion and Mike's going to lead that here in a few minutes. But take a few minutes. If you're learning about God and you're not sure yet whether you believe it or not, we welcome you here as part of this community to learn, to ask, to seek. And you will be loved and respected. If you want to make that commitment, if you believe and you want to be with Christ going forward in this community, you are welcome here. If you have been in this community for a long time and you're struggling with finding your place, knowing where you fit in, or feeling on the outside... This is where you belong. And when we take communion together, we are recommitting to each other to walk with Christ together. And we are recommitting to God that we believe in him and we want to walk with him. And we are accepting his salvation for our lives. Mike, would you come up and lead us in communion? As we celebrate communion, we're reminded that this is his table. It's not my table. It's not Longview Church of the Nazarene's table. The, The table of grace, the table of communion is Christ inviting us to be a part of what God is doing and has done in our world. There's a scripture that occurred to me as Leah was preaching that, that Paul, when he talks to the Corinthians, says, not many of you were of high birth, not many of you were important when you were called. And I was reminded of sometimes where we live, right? We live in Cowlitz County. We're not the movers and shakers of Washington State, let alone of the country or the world. 
But God has called us to lead and to be bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ nonetheless. And we are called. No matter who we are in here. To this table. To gather together and together to declare Christ's resurrection until he comes again. This meal is good news. And our partaking of it is a proclamation of the good news you have already heard this morning. And so I want to remind you, you don't have to be a part of this church. You don't have to be a part of our denomination to receive these gifts. You need only to desire the life and salvation that Christ has come to offer in his death and resurrection. Uh, This morning, we're going to take it in, for those of you who are around a long time, we're going to take it in a different way than we have over the last three years. COVID has done a lot of weird things to us, but we're going to take it in a different way. Um, When the time comes for you to receive the elements, uh, I'm going to stand here, Sheldon will stand here, and we'll ask you to come up and to, to take a piece of bread and to take a cup and to partake of communion in that way. If you're still a little bit weirded out about taking from a common thing, we do have some pre-wrapped if that's something you'd like. So just let one of us know if that's what you want. Um, But I would invite you to come when the invitation is given. To come, you'll be given the elements and you can take them as you're standing. You can come to the altars to pray. You can come and you can pray at your seats and then take them when you're ready. But um, I would invite you to come if you desire the grace that God has offered in his son, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. The communion supper is instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is a sacrament which proclaims his life, his sufferings, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection in the hope of his coming again. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. The supper is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the Holy Spirit, and it is to be received reverently in appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. All those who are truly repentant, forsaking their sins, and believing in Christ for salvation are invited to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We come to the table that we may be renewed in life and salvation and made one by the Spirit. And so in the unity of the church, we confess this faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Holy God, we gather here at your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, he fed the hungry, and he ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And we live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we as the body of Christ gather to offer ourselves to you, Lord God, in praise and in thanksgiving. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them by the power of your spirit be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be for the world the body of Christ which is redeemed by his blood. By your spirit make us one in Christ, one with each other, 
one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now I'd invite you, as the Savior has taught us, let us pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.